got no heart to go see the sufferings of my people played out on stage. I have seen the real thing and I don't want to go see it on a stage or in a theater. And I tell you this because some of the stories that I am going to tell you are indeed horrible, but this isn't for theatrics or shock value. We are going to reduce slavery to the purpose of a taser or a wall outlet. This isn't for shock. This is in a spirit of reverence that comes from the Greek word reverie, meaning to stand in awe of, to stand in respect of, to stand in honor of, to stand in fear of. So when I think about the horrors of chattel slavery, the chains and the manacles and the blood curdling screams of a mother whose baby was ripped from her arms to be sold on another plantation, the rape, the coercion, the bull whips, and the tearing out of flesh from bare backs, the human trafficking, all of it, I stand in reverence for the fortitude of the ancestors who came through such agony and had so much to say about democracy and life in the face of death in America, who made America, who made up the fabric of America. These are the stories. There is pastness in the present and we have to unsilence history. I get so passionate about this because I connect to the pain. I haven't fallen to the spiritual calcification as so many turn their heads in apathy to the suffering of others. And so I connect to the hope and I connect to the despair. There was despair during American chattel slavery, the fear, the death, the anxiety, loss, separation of families shot down. But there was also hope in those who took a risk for freedom and those who carved out lives in the face of catastrophe, who dreamed and loved and laughed and walked with dignity and fought for this multiracial, multigender, multi-class ideal of democracy. Those who held on to their humanity in the face of it all. And so the first lesson that I want to teach though today as we lay that foundation is that slavery is and has been a near universal phenomena among human beings. And this is important because this is going to give the practice a global and a deeper historical context. And the sad reality is so many right wing reactionary people overemphasize the long global history of slavery to deflect from the conversation about the continued consequences of American chattel slavery and racism in America. And then on the left, the political left, there's a lot of people who don't want to mention global slavery at all because they think it might minimize, minimize rather, the reality and complicate their arguments when it comes to American chattel slavery. But I want to go to 
Harvard historian Orlando Patterson, who had this to say about the whole history of slavery. And I think this is very important. He said, there is nothing notably peculiar about the institution of slavery. It has existed from before the dawn of humanity, or human history rather, right down to the 20th century. In the most primitive of human societies and the most civilized, no region on earth has not at some time harbored the institution. Probably there is no group of people whose ancestors were not at one time slaves or slaveholders. It was the Greek philosopher Aristotle who said, when the looms spin by themselves, we'll have no need for slaves. Now, of course, we're not discounting the scope of the transatlantic slave trade and its impact is unprecedented in the nature of racial slavery which we'll talk about won't be overlooked but still i think that we have to remember the normalcy of slavery in human history so often in human societies there has been this idea that a servile and subjugated class must do the work in so many cultures, from Korea to Rome to Mesoamerica to Africa, everywhere you look almost, you can see this philosophy where slavery has been okay in human history and even to, to, to the point that servitude is the divine will of the gods. And so we see this thread running through the entire history and present of slavery and this idea is that might makes right. And we don't begin to see race as we might come to understand it in the 21st century until the 1400s with the legal discrimination against Jews and Moors in Spain. But we do see this thing called othering as the basis for enslaving others. And that is someone who is outside of your group, outside of your ethnic background, outside of your tribe, outside of your nation is looked at as less human. And therefore, you can treat them as inhuman. That is how the cycle has continued throughout history. Race then being something that we are looking at now as it applies from the 1400s and beyond. And so no nation or culture can say they're innocent when it comes to treating outsiders like aliens, falling into this tribalism, falling into nationalism, falling into ethnocentrism. And this is so important to the study of American chattel slavery, because psychologists have noted that with acts and systems of inhumanity, there always has to be some justification. So to justify these horrific practices and acts and institutions, people look at those they victimize as less human because they are women or they are infidels or they are not Christian or they are seen as inferior or they are black or they are Jews or any other number of arbitrary characteristics And then we see these similar threads of discrimination throughout human history. So this gives us context. For most of human history, slavery was not race-based, but we see the makings of what we might call white supremacy going back to a 1449 edict in Spain that was the first set of laws to discriminate based on race. And then you fast forward to the indentured servant John Punch in 1640, who became the first black man in Virginia to be sentenced for slavery or to slavery for life. 
And it was here in America where the word white was used for the first time to distinguish the races for the purpose of upholding white supremacy and race over class. And so this is all important to know in context. And so while race is central to our story, we're going to zoom in and out. So we zoomed out and look at the larger human context. And it allows us to think about power dynamics. Why does power always have to be A over B? What about power sharing where power is A through B? What is this human quest for power and wrestling over resources? which is then a tied, to, a tied to various ideologies and prejudices and excuses to subjugate others. Again, this, this cuts deep across the globe. A few years ago, I read a story of a, a modern Nigerian man, I think it was in 2018, and he was from West Africa. A lot of the nations and kingdoms there were heavily involved in the trade uh, slave trade and this is a man who was still angry that his ancestors were here in america sold from those nations in africa he said our anger at the families who sold our ancestors will never go away into the end of the world so this isn't just an american wound that's why i say history is full of scars and wounds and tears Especially when we talk about the transatlantic slave trade, this is global and it cuts deep and we are talking about at its core power and the capacity to stand up to it. And so when we talk more about the context of slavery, an estimated 40 million people are still enslaved to this day. They found slave labor on the coffee farms of Starbucks in the supply chain in South America within the last several years. And that didn't stop anybody from drinking a pumpkin spice latte. We found slavery in all kinds of supply chains, all kinds of products that we buy here in America. People don't say a mumbling word. And I think that's important to bring up because so many people from the present pretend that in the past they would have revolted with Nat Turner or been diehard abolitionists during chattel slavery. Still, the reality is most people would have done nothing. Most people conform and comply. And during the transatlantic slave trade, there were countless acts of resistance, countless. But overall, there are only ever a handful of people in every generation able to push past the fear to stand up against injustice. And I also have to wonder if a lack of empathy for American chattel slavery connects with the lack of empathy for slavery today. If that lack of understanding translates. But America still needs to put forward a narrative that reconciles the yin and the yang of our history. America likes to champion itself as a nation of continuous progress. And that is not how history ebbs and flows. That is not how the pendulum swings. History is a lot more wayward. It's not a straight line. And so we get two American stories. On the one hand, you have the 1776 narrative. Those who say America is the greatest nation on earth and 
Its founding principles extinguished various forms of evil from the law, such as slavery and racism and other violations of natural rights. So the focus should be on that greatness. The focus should be on the fact that America is a land of opportunity for all. They would say that black people talk too much about the past with the slavery and Jim Crow and that those things really aren't affecting black people today. And then you have the 1619 camp who says, hold on. We need to be more critical of the history as how it's told in this country. Not only have we ignored the lived experiences of enslaved people, but white supremacy is still a part of our country's operational hardware. And this country wasn't made for black people. Black people weren't just slaves, but made into a slave race. And that racism is systemic and still within America's institutions. And so we are in this era where people are stuck. These two sides never talk. These two sides never debate. Just attack and attack and attack. And the media plays the sound bites and everyone stays huddled in their camp and that's how people stay divided in a nation where I'm not sure we could afford to be divided because we all have to live next to each other. We're still neighbors regardless, right? And so I think we have to acknowledge the progress that has been made in America. You stay in the abyss too long, as Nietzsche said, that this is always going to be staring back at you. So if you're always looking for the wrong, you're always going to find the wrong. So we have to balance that. I get it. I love America and our experiment in democracy here, but I also believe that racism definitely exists in systems, in institutions, and that people are dying as a result of this and that this has to be addressed with urgency, not waiting for another George, George Floyd or Ahmaud Aubrey or Breonna Taylor to happen before we have these conversations. And so... Again, though, I believe that unless we keep humanity at the center somewhere where we can rally to try to have these conversations, then these extremes could very well end up tearing the nation apart. It is tearing the nation apart. And so I want to move to my second point and talk about the link between slavery and indigenous extermination. I'm going to tell you a story of resistance once I kind of go through this a little bit. But we have contextualized slavery in a broader sense. But let's be clear, though, for the captives who were sold onto the transatlantic slave trade in those ships, their experiences of slavery in the New World were remarkably different from anything they had witnessed or observed between ethnic groups in Africa. This idea of chattel slavery, it's like slavery on steroids. American chattel slavery could rip a child away from their mother. It could take a wife away from husband, a brother away from brother. American chattel slavery allowed you to be inherited along with furniture as part of an estate sale or sold in that way when the property owner died. American chattel slavery allowed you to be tortured at will by those who held you as property, poked, prodded, grabbed, molested, sexually abused at whim. 
And that is why one of the most common acts of resistance from the outset was suicide. From the slave ships, people chose to mingle their fate with the ocean's depths rather than live a life subjected to such torture, jumping overboard and choosing the sea. They were escaping a form of slavery where racism was the ideological justification for the theft of black labor for around 300 years or more. Black people were seen as inferior, childlike, and savage. They were seen as a laboring class, evolved for work and toil. White people thought blacks could not govern themselves. And so then we get to this long and forgotten connection between indigenous slavery and African slavery. Historians note that between 1492 and 1880, between two and 5.5 million Native Americans were enslaved in the Americas, in addition to 12.5 million Africans. And so again, you have white and everybody else. The word white appears for the first time in the 1680s, as we talked a little bit about before. So you have this racial hierarchy being developed with black people getting pushed to the bottom. And sometimes you have people who slip through the cracks, a black slave owner here, Native American tribe who is in the South somewhere and becomes enslavers. But for the most part, this hierarchy is pretty solidly white versus everyone else. That's how it was set up. And so I want to talk then about this first revolt. Because to do American history and black history justice, we have to go back beyond 1619 when 20 and odd Negroes landed at Port Comfort, Virginia. There's a forgotten century in America that tells a different story if we begin our history in 1526. 93 years earlier, before 1619, at least 20 Africans revolted, burned makeshift buildings to the ground, and helped doom what was perhaps the first settlement in the Americas. This is when they came over with the Spanish. As the story goes, three Spanish ships were sailing across the coast of what is now South Carolina or Georgia. Not exactly sure where, but they know, historians know that it was in this area. And 500 colonists and 100 enslaved Africans were traveling and they had livestock and plants and provisions that were setting up for the long term. They were looking for land and silver and gold and glory for the Spanish crown. But fate can be a cruel jester because one of the ships sank and they managed to rescue all of the passengers but lost most of their food. And they arrived too late in the season to plant crops and so the colonists started starving and their food supplies, they were destroyed. And so one Spanish historian, contemporary of that time wrote, it happened that some of the Negro slaves independently set fire to a leader's house and as the fire burnt, they all gathered to kill him and in this way they managed to escape. Many speculate that the enslaved Africans may have been helped by an indigenous group of people called the Shikori. And this is one of those remarkable forgotten stories from history that merges black and indigenous history. And then we see that the first instance of black people 
on American soil, what would become American soil, was a revolt. And so resistance is a common theme. We must remember that America was not founded on slavery and white supremacy, but amid an unprecedented struggle over slavery and white supremacy. People weren't just sitting back and letting this happen to them. And that is the golden thread is resistance. So again, where there is power, there is resistance. Where there is racism, there is anti-racism. Where there is subordination, there is insubordination. Where there is subjection, there is insurrection. That is why I called this lecture slavery and resistance. Each voice in the story that I tell or the stories that I tell is as distinct as the ridges on our fingertips. Still, every story is part of a grander narrative of courage, freedom, and a consistent attack on slavery, racial inequality. That is the story of Francis Ellen Watkins Harper, of William Still, of Nat Turner, of Martin Delaney, of Denmark Vesey, David Walker, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth. These are the individuals who make up a larger body of work and freedom and justice in black history. I could go on and on every decade, every century, just pumping out freedom fighters. And then those anti-slavery freedom fighters linked to the Ida B. Wells Barnett's, the A. Philip Randolph's, and the Martin King's of the 20th century onto the Black Power Movement, onto the Movement for Black Lives organizations today as an outpouring of grief and anger that started when Trayvon Martin was killed. We can't understand 21st century racial discrimination without understanding 20th century segregation and Jim Crow without understanding the 15th 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th century embodiments of institutional racism and chattel slavery. We're always wrestling with the question, what does black humanity mean in a nation where it has been perennially called into question, interrogated, and taken for granted? And so I want to tell you another story. In the 1780s, a young abolitionist named John Ryland befriended an old African man named Caesar. Caesar had deep scars from the iron fetters that he wore on the slave ship. I call them shuttles of sadism instead of slave ships sometimes. And this was during the Middle Passage. And these scars were impactful enough for Ryland to note that the skin on his ankles and wrist was seamed and rugged. So on that shuttle of sadism, Caesar had his limbs strapped with iron manacles, and then he was sat inches from a man whose language he did not know. The men, they couldn't coordinate their movements when the boat groaned and rocked within the swells of the ocean chaos. At times, the man next to Caesar grew sick and convulsed violently. The chains, they lacerated both men's flesh they cut deeper and deeper and deeper with each violent movement but like lazarus 
Caesar rose from the clutches of death, from torment, tormented people, fire and brimstone. So you have people experiencing this and who likely as a religious people, as black people were during that time, likely have some idea of the biblical description of hell. And they're saying slavery is worse than that. And Bib, he's looking for his wife, but his wife is sold away and violated by the slave traders. And we have to remember that slavery was worse for women. 80% of escapees were solo men because women often had the children with them. So it was harder for them to get away. And we don't like to talk about the exploitation and the sexism that women face even today as if it's taboo. But philosopher named Theodore Adorno said the need to let suffering speak is a condition of all truth. So we must let this history speak. The suffering of history must speak when the suffering does not speak. You get school history textbooks that call enslaved people, workers and migrants, minimizing black suffering. And just one more story here from Kentucky. There was another instance where a woman in Scott County traded horses for two black babies that I found. So we're talking about an institution where the commodification of people was so parasitic, babies couldn't even escape it in exchange for luxuries, right? Horses and clothing and other things. We are reminded of Martin Luther King Jr. who warned us about the danger of the profit motive as the sole basis for an economic system. That's what we were reminded of when we look back at this history. Because many of the same things that drive our economy today are what drove it during slavery. We just don't see it now. The enslaved laborers are offshore now. And people want the stake, but they don't want the slaughter. We have to admit that something big, some catastrophe has to happen for us to talk about this. People want convenience. They want contentment. They want comfort like a Marriott hotel. People would rather be entertained and enlightened, but we can't just skate through this history in denial and selective memory. Avoidance. Nation founded in 1776 took to 1861 for this all finally to boil over largely in or not even in part, but really it's all came from the resistance. You know, the Haitian revolutions, the uh, American revolutions that happened, you know, slave revolts rather put pressure to answer the slavery question. And so as we kind of start to come to the close of, of this, I want to just make another point about the nature of freedom, because there's a tendency to look and think of freedom in absolutes. We forget that there were an infinite amount of degrees in between. So black people could move a little bit uh, up north and, and had more degrees of freedom. People could become craftsmen and buy and sell and trade. There was a black intellectual class during slavery, black wealth and Freemasons like Prince Hall, who ran a successful catering company in Boston in the 18th century, but we must remember we are still discussing modes of social death. And even with limited freedom, black people resisted on behalf of other black people and wanted an equal degree of freedom for everybody. I think about those like David Walker, 
published his appeal in 1829. This is one of those things that kind of pushed the nation towards civil war. It was a pamphlet. It was radical. It was revolutionary. He didn't hold any punches when he said they want us for their slaves and think nothing of murdering us. Therefore, if there is an attempt made by us, kill or be killed, and believe this, that it is no more harm for you to kill a man who is trying to kill you than it is for you to take a drink when you're thirsty. And so for his pamphlet where he is calling for armed resistance, a bounty is put on Walker's head. And that reminds us that the price of freedom is often death. Walker could have stayed silent. He's in the North. He could have stayed quiet in his fragile freedom. But he shows us that it's only through acts of resistance and people acting in the best interest of humanity that we have been able to escape inhumanity. So Walker was found dead in an alley. And they had put a price on his head, $1,000. And he mysteriously comes up dead. One of the biggest ways that people resisted slavery was the Underground Railroad. Frederick Douglass said, I prayed for freedom for 20 years and received no answer until I prayed with my legs. There was no imaginary train, only self-determination. Allowed some 100,000 black people to escape to a fragile freedom. Escaping what many term as the African Holocaust. Some historians estimate that as many as 50,000 people per year attempted to escape on the Underground Railroad. They walked and rode and hidden steamboats. They mailed themselves. They ran, they hid in wagons, they swam, hid on trains and disguised themselves. Some who could write forge free papers. And there were countless stories, there's so many stories of revolts and conspiracies to revolt in American history at the New York Slave Revolt of 1712, the Samba Rebellion of 1731 the German Coast Uprising of 1811. You have black indigenous people, the Seminoles, waging war beginning in 1835, a whole war. But I want to just tell another story and, and wrap this up with a story of individual resistance because I, I think that gets far less attention. And individual resistance didn't always look like fighting in the sense that we think it could be talking back. It could be breaking tools. It could be feigning sickness. But one instance where an individual did fight was recounted in a book by historian John Hope Franklin, towering figure in black history, black historian. And he talks about an enslaved man named Jake. And this contrasts with the docile, faithful slave stereotypes he says, on August 17th, 1840, the day of a great Whig political convention in Nashville, Tennessee, Jake, a slave owned by an old and respected farmer, Robert Bradford, refused to go to work. Like other blacks in the neighborhood, he wanted to go to the convention, listen to the speeches, and attend the celebrations. The overseer informed Bradford that Jake was in an ugly mood, and he asked him what to do. Bradford said that he would speak with Jake and see if he could calm him down. Bradford was unable to placate the black man and ordered his overseer to tie him up for a whipping. 
Jake quickly drew a knife. Whether he aimed to cut the rope or the overseer, no one knew. But he made a wild thrust, which killed Mr. Bradford on the spot. Jacob sconded into the woods. Nine days later, a notice appeared in the Nashville wig. A 30-year-old slave named Jake, a raw bone, quick-spoken man of bright complexion, weighing about 160 to 170 pounds, had murdered old man Bradford. A reward was put out for his apprehension. Despite concerted efforts by Justice of, the, Justice of the Peace and local citizens, Jake remained at large for a number of months. Finally, he was captured, tried, convicted, and hanged. Few lamented his passing, but the death of the esteemed Bradford was universally mourned by whites in the community. Murders such as this one were rare under the slave regime, but the incident revealed undercurrents that were quite common. Like Jake, other slaves were frustrated, alienated, defiant, sometimes violent indeed. Jake's anger and hostility represented a far greater proportion of the slave population than most people suspect, unquote. This story allows us to stay in tune with those whose humanity has been overlooked and whose humanity has become invisible. I educate myself on these stories so that I can find more love, more courage, more compassion, more respect for human life. No one mourned for Jake or the risk he was willing to take for freedom. The frustration and anger and self-defense that he put forth to keep from getting whipped, beaten, and said he didn't want to take it anymore. Never forget the acts of resistance. Never forget the desire to be free. There are countless stories like this, but the theme is the desire to be free. Of course, you all know the rest of Civil War and 13th Amendment and how cheap labor continued to facilitate America's expansion through sharecropping and tenant farming and debt peonage and Jim Crow and Jane Crow and racial terror and lynching and 1960 sets up against the backdrop of slavery. But the best of the black freedom struggle never let slavery or injustice have the last word. So the history of slavery for me is about how people fought against arbitrary uses of power, racism in all its forms, and how we tie all this together. So lastly, I want to say that for me, this idea of slavery and resistance exemplifies the links people are willing to go to achieve that freedom, even if it can mean death. American slavery gives us a roadmap to how we got where we are today in terms of race in our country. Not only the divide, but how people have bridged those divides across race and religion and gender and class and nationality, however uneasy and difficult those alliances might have been. The legacy of slavery reminds me of what Nelson Mandela said when he told us, for to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. And I want to leave off with what I think we all need to have, and that is a Sankofa sensibility. Sankofa is a word that originated with the Akan people of West Africa and is generally depicted as a bird with its head turned backward, taking an egg from its back. And it's translated as, it is not taboo to go back and fetch what is at risk of being left behind. Acknowledging, then, 
the debt we owe to those who came before us, looking back to the past to acknowledge the best of the past before we move forward, using the past to authorize a better present based on the past, situating ourselves in a story bigger than ourselves, honoring those who came before us. That is what the study of history is about for me. That is what the study of slavery is about for me. Now let us have a moment of silence for those who worked, lived, fled, died within the harrowing ordeals of American slavery. <laughs> 